Chapter Three, Part Five of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten, Ingersoll's Opening Address to the Jury in the Second Star Root Trial, Part Five of Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The next badge of fraud that is charged is that after a route had been awarded to us, it was increased or expedited, or both, before the stock was put on. Well, I will tell you just how that is, because you want to know. This case, apparently complicated, is infinitely simple when it is understood. There are in the United States, I believe, some 10,000 of these star routes. They are all, or nearly all, in some way connected. One depends upon another. It is a web woven over the entire West, and how you run a mail here depends upon how one is run there, and the effort is to have all these mails connect in a certain harmony so that time will not be lost, and so that each letter will get to its destination in the shortest possible time. And it requires not only a great deal of experience, but it requires a great deal of ingenuity. It requires a great deal of study and strict attention for a man so to arrange the routes and the time in the United States that the letters can be gotten to their destination in the shortest possible time. And yet that is the object. You can see that. Now you may be looking at the route from A to B and say that there is no sense in having it in that time. But if you look at the time of other routes, if you see with what routes that connects, you will say that is sensible. Now you go to another route, and gentlemen, you see that every solitary route is touched, is compromised, is affected by every other route. That is what I want you to understand. Now then, Mr. Bliss says that it was a badge of fraud to increase the time and the service on a route before the stock was put on. Now let me show you. Here you have your scheme. Here is the route. We will say from A to E. You let that for a weekly route. Once a week. How fast? A hundred hours? When you get the other routes and look at this business, you see that that crosses several places where the mail is lost. That is where a day is lost. And you see, if instead of that being a hundred hours, it were seventy-five hours, the mail at many stations would save one day or two days. Now then, the law vests in you the power before a solitary horse or carriage goes upon that route to say to the man to whom the contract was awarded, you must carry that in 75 hours instead of 100 hours, and you must carry it four times a week instead of once a week. If you take that power from the postmaster general and from the second assistant, those offices become useless. It is impossible for any human intellect to take into consideration all the facts growing out of this service. There is another thing, gentlemen, which you must remember, and that is that these advertisements for this service are not made the day the service is wanted. 
these advertisements are put out six months before there is to be any such service it is sometimes a year before that service is wanted and if you know anything about the west you know that in one year the whole thing may change that where there is not a city there may be a city and where there was a city nothing but desolation now then the law very wisely has vested the power in the second assistant and the postmaster-general to rectify all the mistakes made either by themselves or by time and to call for faster time or for slower that is for less frequent trips now then you see that that is no badge of fraud do you not if before you put a man or a horse on that route the government finds it wants twice as many trips there is no fraud in saying so and if they find they want to go in fifty hours instead of a hundred hours there would be fraud in not saying so that has been the practice since this was a government now what is the next the next great charge against us gentlemen is that when they agreed to carry a greater number of trips or any swifter time for money mr brady did not make us give an additional bond and mr bliss talked about that i should think about a day nearly all the time i heard him he was on that subject why did they not when they were to carry additional trips give a new bond well i will tell you why because there is no law for it there never was a law for it never and mr brady had no right to demand a bond unless the statute provided for it when i give a bond to carry the mail once a week and the government finds that it wants it carried three times a week the government cannot make me give an additional bond why because the statute does not provide for it and mr brady had not the power to enact new laws that is all why there was never such a bond given and any bond that is given under duress by compulsion not having the foundation of a statute is absolutely null and void everybody knows it that knows anything and yet the gentleman comes before you and says it is a sign of fraud that we did not give an additional bond. There never was such a bond given in the history of this government. Never. And in all probability never will be unless these gentlemen get into Congress. You know the law prescribes every bond that the contractor must give and it is bad enough without ever being increased during the contract term. So much now for that frightful badge of fraud. I want to make this statement so you will understand it. They have the unfairness. They have the lack of candour to tell you that it is one of the evidences that we are scoundrels, that we failed to give an additional bond and when they made that statement they knew that by law we could not give an additional bond and they knew that if we had given an additional bond it would not have been worth the paper upon which it was written and yet they lack candour to that degree that they come into this court and tell you that that is one of the evidences that we have conspired against the united states it won't do 
what is the next badge of fraud and i want to tell you this is a case of badges and patches and ravelings and remnants and rags it is a kind of a mental garret full of odd boots and strange cats thrown at us and altogether it is called a case of conspiracy another badge of fraud is that whenever we carried the mail one trip a week and it was increased to two trips a week brady was such a villain that he gave us double pay and mr bliss informed the jury that they knew just as well as he did that it did not cost twice as much to give two trips a week as it did to give one well who said it did and yet they say that is an evidence of fraud well let us see there is nothing like finding the evidence now when we come to this case we will introduce a bond that we gave at that time and when the jury read that bond they will find this or substantially this it is hereby agreed by the said contractor and his sureties that the postmaster-general may discontinue or extend this contract change the schedule alter increase or extend the service he allowing not to exceed a pro rata increase of compensation for any individual service thereby required or for increased speed if the employment of additional stock or carriers is rendered necessary and in case of decrease curtailment or discontinuance as a full indemnity to said contractor one month's extra pay on the account of service dispensed with and not to exceed a pro rata compensation for the service retained provided however that in case of increased expedition the contractor may upon timely notice relinquish his contract now it is in that provided that if they call on him for double service he is entitled to double pay that is the law and it has been the practice gentlemen since we have had a post office department and why let me show you here is a man who carries a mail from a to y there are supposed to be some commercial transactions between those two places it is supposed that now and then a human being goes from one of these places to the other and the man who carries the mail as a rule carries passengers and does the local business now do you suppose that he would agree with the government that he would carry the mail once a week for a thousand dollars a year and that they might hire another man to carry it once a week for a thousand dollars a year and maybe that other man take all his passengers and all his business the understanding is that when i bid a thousand dollars a year for once a week if you put it to three times a week i am to have three thousand dollars four times a week four thousand dollars seven times a week seven thousand dollars and that has been the unbroken practice of this government from the establishment of the post office department until today you can see the absolute propriety of it you can see that any man would be almost crazy to take a contract on any other terms and that contract is this i will carry for you so much a trip 
and if you want more trips you can have them at the same price as that fixed that is fair that is what we did so much for that badge of fraud what is the next one it is that the pay was increased twice as much by the increase and as i said that is the law now let us see what is the next great badge of fraud that we received the pay when the mail was not carried i deny it and we shall show in this case gentlemen that we never received pay except when the mail was carried and how do i know because general brady established a system of waybills so that a waybill would accompany every pouch in which letters were and they would put on that waybill the time that it got to the post office and when that waybill got to the terminal point it was sent here to washington and filed away and at the end of every quarter a report was made and if a mail was behind at any post office you would find it on that waybill and if they had not made the trip then they were fined that waybill system was inaugurated by general brady and under that waybill system we carried the mail and we could not get pay unless we had carried the mail i call them waybills they are mail bills they go with a pouch and give a history of each mail that is carried that is all now another great badge of fraud the first was that he was to impose no fines when the mail was not carried the next was that he was to impose fines and then take the fines off for half fifty per cent now would not that be an intelligent contract i carry the mails you are the second assistant postmaster general i agree with you that if you find me and then will take the fine off i will give you half of it about how long would it take you to break me up and yet that is honestly and solemnly put forward here as a fact in the case they tell a story of a man who was bitten by a dog another man said to him i'll tell you what to do you just sop some bread in that blood and give it to the dog it will cure you oh my god says he if the other dogs hear of it they will eat me up and here it is without a smile urged before this jury that we made a bargain that a fellow might fine us for the halves well there may be twelve men in this world who believe it they are unfortunate the next charge is that a subcontract was made for less than the original contract. Well, that is where most of the money in this world is made. Thousands and millions of men have made fortunes by buying corn at 60 cents a bushel to be delivered next February and selling the same corn for 70 cents. There is where fortunes live. The difference between a contract and a subcontract is the territory of profit in which every American loves to settle. You make a contract with the government to furnish, say, a thousand horses of a certain kind for $150 apiece. You go and make a subcontract with someone to furnish you those same horses for $125 apiece. Is that fraud? you have taken upon yourself the responsibility and if your subcontractor fails you must make it good there is no harm in that 
suppose i agree with you to-morrow that if you will furnish me one thousand bushels of wheat on the first day of january i will give you one thousand five hundred dollars and i find out that you made a bargain with another fellow to do it for a thousand dollars if i am an honest man i suppose i will jump the contract won't i not much if i am an honest man i will say well you made five hundred dollars i am glad of it good for you but the idea of the prosecution is that the moment brady saw a subcontract for less than the original contract he should have had a moral spasm and said i won't carry out the contract i will swindle you i will rob you and i will do it in the name of virtue and that is the meanest way a man ever did rob in the name of virtue reform so much for that but if you ever make a contract with this government and can make a subcontract at the same price you do it as quick as you can the next is that whenever he discontinued a route or any part of a route rather he gave us a month's extra pay you heard that did you not he was on that subject about a half a day how did he come to do that i will tell you there is nothing like looking and in case of decrease curtailment or discontinuance of service as a full indemnity to said contractor one month's extra pay on the amount of service dispensed with that is first the law secondly the contract and thirdly it was made in the interest of the united states and why suppose the united states made a contract with a man to carry a mail from new york to liverpool and in consequence of that contract the man bought steamships to perform the service and then the united states made up its mind not to carry the mail that man might get damages to the amount of hundreds and thousands of dollars therefore the united states endeavoured to protect itself and say the limit of damage shall be one month's pay and that has been the law for years and that law has been passed upon by the supreme court of the united states it was passed upon in the case of garfield against the united states where he claimed greater damages because he had all the steamships to carry the mail from san francisco to portland and the supreme court said it made no difference what his expense had been he was bound by the letter of the law and the contract and could have only one month's extra pay as his entire damage now these gentlemen bring forward a law to protect the united states government and they bring that forward as an evidence of conspiracy as evidence of a fraud nothing could be more unfair nothing on earth could show a greater want of character now let us see what else the next great charge is false affidavits they tell you that we made lots of them that we had just had them for sale false affidavits and that mr john w dorsey made two false affidavits in two cases the evidence will show that he did not the evidence will show that he made only one in each case when we come to it but i want to call your attention to this fact that in one case one affidavit was made where it said the number of men and horses then necessary was eight 
that on the expedited schedule it would be twenty-four. Three times eight are twenty-four. The second affidavit said the number of men and horses then was fifteen, and the number on expedition and increase would be forty-five. Three times fifteen are forty-five so that the amount taken from the government would be exactly the same on both affidavits. You understand that? For instance, if I took five horses and men to do the then business, and would require fifteen to do the expedited and increased business, then you would be entitled to three times the amount of pay. So in this case, one affidavit said it took eight, and would take twenty-four. The other affidavit said it took fifteen and would take forty-five. Three times eight are twenty-four, three times fifteen are forty-five, so that the amount of money taken from the government would be exactly the same under each affidavit. Now that is all there is of it. In the next case, where he made two affidavits, I find that by the second affidavit it took I think, $13,000 less from the government, and yet they call the second affidavit a piece of perjury. And here is one thing that I want to impress upon all your minds. Where you not only carry the mail but carry passengers, it is an exceedingly difficult problem to say just how many horses and men it requires to carry the mail and then how many men and horses it requires to carry the passengers. It is hard to make the divide, you understand, very hard. You can tell, for instance, the cost of mounting a railroad for a hundred miles, but it is very difficult to tell the cost of the bridges, or what the spikes cost, or what the deep cuts cost. You can take the whole together and say it costs so much a year. So in this case, we can say it requires so many men and horses doing the business that we are doing. But it is almost impossible for the brain to separate exactly the passengers, the package business, from simply carrying the mail. As I said before, men will differ in opinion. Some men will say it will take ten horses, others twenty, others twenty-five, and then the next question arises, and I want to call particular attention to that question, and that is whether the law means only the horses absolutely carrying the mail, whether the law means by carriers only the men who ride the horses or drive the wagons. Now I will tell you what I mean. I undertake to carry the mail. We will say from Omaha to San Francisco. How many men will it take? Now I will count all the men who are driving the stages, all the men who are gathering forage, all the men who are tending to that business in any way. And if on the way I have blacksmith's shops where my horses are shod, I will count those men. If I have men engaged in drawing wood, a hundred miles, I will count those men. In other words, I will count all the men I pay, no matter whether they are keeping the books in New York or carrying the mail across the desert. I will count all the men I pay. So will you. What horses will you count? All the horses engaged in the business? Those that are drawing corn for the others, as well as the rest? 
will you not there is an old fable that a trumpeter was captured in the war and he said to his captor i am not a soldier i never shot anybody ah they said but you incited others to shoot and you are as much a soldier as anybody we want you now i say that we are entitled to count every man who carries the mail and every man necessary to perform that service so do you now there we divide the government says we shall count simply the men carrying the mail nobody else and we shall count simply the horses in actual service that is nonsense for instance you have got to have thirty horses they are going all the time do you depend on just that thirty no sir if one gets lame you cannot carry the mail you have got to have twenty or thirty horses in the corral in the stables so that if one of the others gives out you will have enough that is one great question in this case gentlemen what i say to you now is that on every one of these routes in which my clients are interested or i may say in which anybody is interested the evidence will be that the affidavits were substantially correct in many cases there was a far greater difference between the men and horses than used and the men and horses that were afterwards necessary you must take another thing into consideration in a country where there are indian depredations one man will not stay at a station by himself he wants somebody with him he wants two or three with him and the more frightened he is the more men he will want on that route from bismarck to tongue river as to which it was sworn it would take a hundred and fifty men the statement was made at a time when the men would not stay separately that they wanted five or six together at one station that they wanted men out on guard and watch you will find before we get through gentlemen that the affidavits do not overstate the number you will find in addition that these petitions were signed by the best men that that service was asked for by the best men not simply in the territories but by some of the best men in the united states by members of congress by senators by generals by great and splendid men men of national reputation so when we come to that we will show to you that the affidavits made were substantially true there is another charge that has been made and that is that the affidavits in mr peck's name were not made by him that he never signed these affidavits yet gentlemen we will prove to you as the government once proved to mr taylor a notary public in new mexico that mr peck appeared personally before him that he was personally acquainted with mr peck and that he signed and swore to those affidavits in his presence that we will substantiate in this trial as the government substantiated in the other these gentlemen are among the charges that have been made against us i say to you today they will not be able to show that we ever put upon the files of the post office department a solitary letter a solitary petition a solitary communication that was not genuine and true not one they cannot do it they never will do it 
you will be astonished when you hear these petitions to find the government admitting that they are true if they do not read them we will read them that is all now i have stated to you a few of the charges made against my clients up to this point i want to keep it in your mind i want each man on this jury to understand exactly what i say let us go over this ground a little i want to be sure you remember it in the first place s w dorsey was not interested in these routes all the bids were made by john w dorsey john m peck john r minor and a man by the name of boone all the information was gathered by mr boone by sending circulars to every postmaster on the routes upon that information john w dorsey john m peck and john r minor made their calculations and made their bids numbering in all about twelve hundred of that number they had awarded to them a hundred and thirty-four contracts recollect that after those contracts were awarded to them they were without the money to put the stock on all the routes because more contracts were awarded than they expected thereupon john r minor borrowed some money from stephen w dorsey and kept up that borrowing until the amount reached some sixteen or eighteen thousand dollars don't forget it after it got to that point mr dorsey started for new mexico at st louis he met john r minor then coming from montana and john r minor said to him we have got to have some more money of you and dorsey replied i have no more money to give you minor then said you give your note or endorse mine for nine or ten thousand dollars dorsey replied if you will give me post office orders and drafts not only to secure the note i am about to endorse or make for you but also to the amount of the money i have advanced for you i will give the note that was agreed upon thereupon he gave the note it was discounted in the german american national bank and mr minor deposited with the note the orders on the post office department not only to secure the note but the sixteen thousand dollars that dorsey had before that time advanced dorsey went on to new mexico and in may or july of that year another law was passed allowing a subcontractor to put his subcontract on file after he had advanced that money and endorsed or signed the note they made the contract with mr vale turning these routes over to him and giving him subcontracts on all these routes when stephen w dorsey came back from new mexico in december of that year he found that the note at the german american national bank had been protested and that his collateral security was at that time worthless because the subcontracts had been filed and these subcontracts cut out the post office orders or drafts thereupon he wanted a settlement matters drifted along until april eighteen seventy nine and a settlement was made i have told you that from the time the routes were given to mr vale until that time nobody had the slightest thing to do with them except mr vale that in april eighteen seventy nine the division was made 
that mr vale paid the note at the german american national bank that the division was made as i told you by mr vale drawing one route mr dorsey one and mr minor one and keeping that up until they were all drawn i forgot to tell you before that mr s w dorsey had sixteen thousand dollars to which if you add the interest it would be about eighteen thousand dollars that john w dorsey had ten thousand dollars and john m peck had ten thousand dollars and when that division was made stephen w dorsey agreed to pay john w dorsey ten thousand dollars and to pay john peck ten thousand dollars for his interest gentlemen he did pay john w dorsey ten thousand dollars and he did pay the same amount to peck and from that day to this john w dorsey has never had the interest of one solitary cent in any one of these routes he was simply paid back the money that he expended not another cent john m peck never made by this business one solitary dollar he simply received back the money he had expended after he had paid back that money to both of these men stephen w dorsey took these routes with a debt to him of between sixteen and eighteen thousand dollars now as to mr Rurdle, they say he was the private secretary of stephen w dorsey he never was not for a moment not for a single moment he attended to some of this business i have no doubt that the government imagine they can debauch somebody in order to get information i give them notice now go on there is no living man whose testimony we fear there is no living lawyer who has the genius to make perjury do us harm i want you to understand it and i want them to understand that i know precisely what they are endeavouring to do there is only one way for them to surprise me and that is for them to do a kind thing now gentlemen at that time i want you to remember it i do not want you to forget it when these roots came to mr dorsey he not understanding the business turned it over to mr james w bosler mr bosler as i told you before is a man of wealth but say these gentlemen while these roots were in your possession and while stephen w dorsey had an interest in them he asked men to sign petitions in favour of an increase of trips and decrease of time what if he did suppose you have a house out there somewhere you can petition to have a street opened even if you have the contract for paving the street you have a right to petition to have a schoolhouse located in your neighbourhood even if you have children there is no harm about that you certainly can petition to have cows prevented from running at large even if there is no fence around your yard i think you could do so without being indicted for conspiracy i think a man might start a subscription for a church even if he owned a brickyard and expected to sell bricks to build it now suppose i had a contract to carry the mail through the state of california from one end to the other once a week is there any harm in my asking the people of that country to petition to have it carried twice a week do you not remember what i told you all the members of congress out there 
when they go home want to say to the people when they meet at the convention with all the delegates on hand why gentlemen you did not use to get the new york herald or new york times or the sun until it was two weeks old and now it is only a week old where you only had one mail i have given you three i have got fifty thousand dollars to improve your harbour and one hundred thousand dollars for a new custom-house look at me gentlemen i am a candidate for re-election that is natural this court will instruct you that any man who is carrying a mail anywhere in the united states has the right to use his influence in getting up petitions for the increase of that service or the expedition of that time they say Dorsey did this. What of it? They say Dorsey tried to manufacture public opinion. That is what these gentlemen of the prosecution have been doing for 18 months, and now they object to the manufacture of public opinion. Public opinion is their stock in trade. Leaving that charge, every man who has a contract for carrying the mail has the right to call the attention of every editor in that country to the fact that they need more mail service. He has the right to send his agents there, and if the people want to petition for more service, and if Congress is willing to give them more service, no human being has a right to complain in this manner and in a criminal court if any offence has been committed it is of a political nature if a member of congress gets too much service his people can keep him at home if he does too much for his locality they need not elect him the next time it is a political offence for which there is a political punishment and a political remedy so much for the right of petition I'm perfectly willing to tell all he did in regard to the increase of service and the expedition. While I am on that point, I want you to distinctly understand what increase is and what expedition is. Increase of service means more of the same kind. Suppose I am to carry the mail from one place to another. We will call it from Siwash to Ouray. If I am to carry that mail once a week for $500, and they want it twice a week, I have $1,000. But do not carry it any faster. That is an increase. Suppose I am carrying it in, say, 200 hours, and they want it carried in half that time. That is what they call expedition. Now the question is as to the difference in cost of carrying the mail at six miles an hour, or at two and a half, or two, or one and a half. If I carry it slowly, I can go at a reasonable rate in the day, and can lie by at night. I want you to understand distinctly the difference between increase of service, which is more of the same kind, and expedition, which means the same kind at a faster rate. Now I can carry the mail 20 miles and back in a day, and do that a great deal easier than if I were to make the distance in four or five hours. The difference is just about the same with a locomotive as with a horse. If a train runs 20 miles an hour and you want to increase its speed to 30, it will cost altogether more than twice as much as it does to run it at 20. 
if you want to increase it still further to forty or sixty it will cost at sixty more than three times as much as at twenty the cost increases in an increased proportion i want you to understand that now we are charged with having done some frightful things on several of these routes and for three days and a half your ears were filled with charges of the rascality we have perpetrated we had some ten or eleven routes and we are charged with having defrauded the government on those particular routes let us see what my clients did do not understand me as saying that because my clients have done nothing the other defendants have i do not take that position i take the position that according to the evidence in this case there is nothing against any of these defendants leave out passion prejudice falsehood and hatred and there is absolutely nothing left if you will take from mr bliss's speech all the mistakes he made in law and fact there will be nothing left to answer not a word but i think it due to my client gentlemen my client who is not able to be in this court my client who sits at home wrapped in darkness that i should answer every allegation touching every route in which he was interested i think it due to him i will call your attention to a few of the routes possibly to all in which my clients were interested it will take but a short time I want you to know whether or not these routes were important, whether it was proper to carry the mails as they were carried, whether it was proper that they should be carried from once to seven times a week, or whether it was proper that the speed should be expedited. Now you may think, after hearing the evidence, that there were some routes that never should have been established, but that does not establish a conspiracy that simply establishes the fact that Congress created routes where they were not absolutely necessary. You may come to the conclusion that General Brady ordered more trips on some of these routes than he should have ordered. That does not establish a conspiracy. The most that it could establish would be extravagance, and extravagance is not a crime. If it were the penitentiaries of the day would not be large enough, or rather would be large enough and too large to hold the honest men. You may say after you have heard the evidence that the time was faster than it needed to be, but you must take into consideration all the connecting routes, and even if you should so feel, it is for you to say whether that establishes any conspiracy. All these things must be taken into consideration. We will take first the route from Garland to Parrot City. Now I have gone over just a few of these charges. I have shown you that they are false, that they are without the slightest shadow of foundation in fact. Now, gentlemen, after you hear all this evidence, it is for you to determine. It is for you to say whether these men entered into a conspiracy to defraud this government. It is for you to say whether our testimony is to be believed, or whether you are to decide this case upon the suspicions of the government. It is for you to say whether you will believe the contracts and the witnesses, or whether you will take the prejudice of the public press. 
whether you will take the opinion of the Attorney-General, whether you will take the letter of some counsellor at law, or whether you will be governed by the testimony in this case. It is for you to say, gentlemen, whether a man shall be found guilty on inference, whether a man shall be deprived of his liberty by prejudice. It is for you to say whether reputation shall be destroyed by malice and by ignorance. It is for you to say whether a man who fought to sustain this government shall not have the protection of the laws. It is for you, and it is for you, and you, and you, to say whether a man who fought to take the chains off your body shall have chains put upon his by your prejudice and by your ignorance. It is for you to say whether you will be guided by law, by evidence, by justice and by reason, or whether you will be controlled by fear, by prejudice and by official power. That, gentlemen, is all I wish to say in this opening. This ends chapter 3, read by Edward Kirkby, Warwick, England.